0: Alrighty, we'll um, make a start with the message this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. We're going to start in John chapter 6 today, but before we do, um, last week we read through Psalm 119, which was um, an amazing blessing. I was really inspired by that. And uh, I also wanted to just spend a bit more time on John chapter 5 verse 8, and so I've kind of linked the two things together. So we'll do that, Father. I just thank you. I pray you'll help me to speak only what's true. You'll guide my words, and you'll open our hearts to receive your truth and to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, if we go first to John chapter five verse eight, it says, "Rise, take up your bed and walk." And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Now, I don't usually read cartoons, but you remember the um, the Peanuts cartoons? Yeah, remember them? Okay, is it Linus or Linus? Linus? Yeah, Linus and Charlie Brown and and the dog Snoopy. So here's one if you can kind of picture them sitting on a park bench. Looking rather glum, um, Linus says to Charlie Brown, sometimes it seems like life has passed me by. Do you ever feel that way? Charlie looked at Linus and said, no, life has knocked me down and keeps walking all over me. (laughs) So as we look at Jesus' words, I think that we can use that to kind of picture how the lame man would have felt, you know, lame, lame for 38 years, um, not being able to get into the pool, thinking if I can only get there but never being able to get there. And then we can relate it to us. How do we feel sometimes when we go through some difficult times when the difficult time just seems to keep on going and we start to feel like life is just walking all over us? So, rise, take up your bed and walk. So, rise. Jesus came to the man and said, I'm going to ask you to do the impossible. Stand up. You see, Christ's words work his will. God's commandments are God's enablements. The very word rise would enable the lame man to do the impossible. And just because Jesus said it, there would be the power to do it. Remember how Jesus made the world? He spoke. He spoke. And it was done. God's promises, God's commands are also His promises. You know, do not lie. We have the power to tell the truth because we have Jesus living in us. So take up your bed. I've read an interesting take on this. It's make no provision for failure. You think about it. If you leave your bed next to the pool, you're thinking, oh, well, what happens if this healing isn't permanent? What if I get lame again? Well, I'm going to need to go back to my bed but he didn't. He, he took up his bed and he walked off. So if we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, and if, if we have been in bondage to anything that seems to have a grip on us, or does have a grip on us, and Christ comes and says, do you want to be made well? We say, yes. And Jesus says, rise. Well, then take up your bed. Make no provision for failure. Don't keep a video stored in your bottom drawer just in case you get a craving again. Don't keep a six-pack tucked away in the back of the pantry in case you might win a sip or two or three. Don't keep his number just in case or her number just in case no one else calls you for the next three weeks. You know, Make no provision for failure. So whatever your weakness is, get rid of it. Don't make any provision for failure. Take off that bed and don't leave it there to go back to. And then walk. Now, no one's going to carry you. Now, Christians need to learn this. Like the lame man, this is a big problem, I believe, in the modern church. We think that we need help from man, from a counsellor, a psychologist, someone who's trained in counselling, someone who's trained in psychology, or a Christian therapist, if if they're really Christian. So they say, where is someone to disciple me, pray for me, study with me? Where is someone to give me advice? And the lame man had a choice to make. He could either obey the word of Christ or argue that it wouldn't work for him. And so can we. So no one's going to carry us. Uh, Corrie ten Boom was right. She said, you will never discover Jesus Christ is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Well, you say, if Jesus were here in the flesh as he was with the lame man, I too would walk. But he's no longer in the midst of us we can no longer hear from him directly. Well, I would challenge that. We have, one, the Holy Spirit inside of us, and two, we have Hebrews 10, verse 7, which says, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written on me. So here are Jesus' words to us. So if we read our Bibles, we will hear the Spirit speaking through those words and helping us. Now, how does the Bible help us? Well, 2 Peter 1, 4-5 says, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Now last week we talked a bit about sanctification. So we have the power the Holy Spirit living in us to live a perfect life. that's the truth, but we sometimes don't want to. We want to be like the lame man in some aspects of our lives. We want to stay down because we just aren't willing to give those things up yet. but as we go forth and we learn to love the Lord more, we love those things less and we give them up and we take on we, we take make use of the power that God has given us. so everything we need to escape the sickness and sadness of this world the things that keep us down, is found in the exceedingly great and precious promises of the Bible. Yet, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in particular, but it's just an overview of the church and people that I've spoken to. A lot of Christians don't read their Bibles consistently, and this is really sad. Um, When was the last time you read through the entire Bible to gain the whole counsel of God? And if you ask someone that, they'll say, I don't know, I don't think I've ever read the Bible right through. It's a blessing. It's a huge blessing to read the Bible through. Now, honestly, there's some parts I still don't understand. There's some parts I still I don't, I don't get excited when I read through the law and in Leviticus. But you know, God will. Uh, some things will just pop out at me, like um, as I'm reading through that boring chapter of names or whatever. It'll, there'll be a, a section, and so and so did this, and it caused, and you go, "Oh wow!" And that'll speak to me, you know, that's what. So you read through the whole counsel of God, and it will bear fruit. God has clearly said in Psalm 1 that the person who is meditating in the word will bear fruit they will never shrivel up and they will prosper in all they do yet the top rated religious broadcasters are no longer bible teachers they're in in my view they're psychologists motivational speakers emotional manipulators who heal the wound of my people slightly there's a verse here in Jeremiah Jeremiah 8.11, for they have healed the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace or no healing. People flock to the seminars, videos, and books of those who say, and they may not say it explicitly, but they do this, the key is psychology and human understanding. Yes, we're Christians, but scripture is not totally sufficient. Have you ever been, or I've heard lots of stories about this, where pastors will refer someone who needs counselling to a psychologist? Okay, And that's exactly what they're doing. I'm sorry, but the Bible's not sufficient. You need to go to a psychologist. And that's so sad. Can psychology be helpful? Maybe, sometimes. Is it necessary? No. The Scriptures are all sufficient, for they speak of Christ, point to Christ, and bring us to Christ. So stay in the Scriptures, read your Bible, and we're going to check out a few verses from Psalm 19. And just like we found in Psalm 119, uh, the, the power of the Word of God to help us and change us. So Psalm 19:7 to 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, I'm just going to go through each one of them very quickly. because It's not the main sermon, it's just a, it's a, a beginning. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. That's verse 7. So, the whole Bible for us... It's not just the first five books, but the whole Bible can bring healing to us. There's power in the Word of God. God can speak to us through all parts of the Bible. We can bring, we can get healing, mental and emotional healing from the Word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So sure means solid, and the word simple means open-minded. The Word of God gives a solid footing to those who would otherwise be naive. It's only by having a good understanding of the scriptures that we won't be tossed to and fro by all these doctrines that keep coming into the church. The third one, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's verse 8. So studying the word of God or meditating on the word of God will bring joy to your soul. Now think of Jeremiah. He was, you know, this guy called the weeping prophet. He was cast into a pit and, you know, he's often depressed he said your words were found and i ate them and your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart so jeremiah the weeping prophet is saying you know where i find joy it's in the word of god so if you're feeling down get into your bible because god will encourage you through your the word i found that to be true many a time the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes so, how do we know what is right and wrong? How do we see clearly? Well, through the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So, it's not a f- passing fad. It's not a uh, you know something that's going to go away. It's true. It will stay true, and it will work for every generation. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We know in our hearts that the Spirit confirms the, the truth of the Word of God. How can we be healed emotionally? How can we live in stability? How can we have joy experientially? How can we see clearly? How can we be guided continually? How do you know what is true? It's all through the word. So I just want to encourage you that, um, to stay in the word. Now, sometimes we, we might say, well, tried that. The word has failed me. I, I'm not experiencing that. But you know what? In my life, you know, here you go through phases. Yeah. Well, sometimes. I've never said I don't want to read the Bible, but what I've done in practice is I've made other things more important than the Bible. So right now I'm making the most important thing reading the Bible because that's the first thing I do. We get up, we pray, and we we have um, quiet time. And that's a a non-negotiable in our house. But there have been times when it hasn't been like that. And when you don't prioritize to read the Word in the morning, then other things take its place. And the Word of God gives pushed out and pushed out, and sometimes you read it, sometimes you don't, but you're not getting fed, you know. As Job said, if I if I paraphrase, no read, no feed. When we diminish the priority of the word, we can lose our zeal, we can lose our, our, our passion, we can lose our love, and we start to be, become weak. We need to feed on the word. Now, I just want to read a quote talking about that counseling thing where pastors are sending out people. There's a lot of churches doing this to psychologists and Christian counselors for counseling. Um, A quote from John Corson. He says, Growing up in Depression-era Southern California, my mum cannot recall a single Christian counseling clinic. The term itself would have been oxymoronic. You see, in my mum's day, the Word of God was taught Altar calls were given, and people were convicted. They would kneel at the altar, weep before the Lord, repent of their sin, and go their way rejoicing. Today, people hear Bible studies, then go home, fire up the barbecue, watch the football game on TV, and remain troubled inside. Four days later, they call up a counsellor. They then wonder why they're not really helped. I always I say this to this is John Corson the quote continuing I say this to pastors elders psychologists social workers and psychiatrists to all who are involved with people the key is to point people back to the person of Jesus Christ tell them to get in the Word and do what it says if that means turning off the TV or shutting down the barbecue to spend time seeking God tell them to do it tell them to spend whatever time it takes to get to the point. Where rationalization and justification end and where true confession and repentance begins. John 5 8, getting back to our starting text. So, do you want to be made whole? So, why would Jesus ask this question to this man who's been sick 38 years? Because some people want to stay lame. They're comfortable on the deck at Bethesda with their sunglasses turning on their smartphone. <laughs> They're laying there and they can't walk, but you know what? I get to listen to songs on my on my phone, or this is more applicable to students, I suppose, but not for, for some of us with our generation who don't really care about smartphones, but you know, for the majority of people, um, the smartphones is their world. They don't have to take care of their families. They have no responsibilities. They can't work because they're lame. So others take care of them and put up with them while they ignore the true healing available to them. So you might be living with marital strife, addiction to alcohol, uh, a fascination with pornography. You might have a tendency to lie, gossip, or lose your temper. And God is asking you, do you want to be made whole? Will you be made whole? So listen to the words of Jesus. Do the impossible. Make no provision for failure. And don't expect anyone to carry you. You need to respond. There's my little um, revision from uh, John 5 verse 8. And uh, encouragement to get into the word. So now we're going to start in um, John chapter 6. I'm hoping to get up to verse 21. So we're just going to read John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, and then we'll start going through it verse by verse. It says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread, that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the the land where they were going. In chapter 5, we saw Jesus seeking an individual, the lame man. Here, as chapter 6 opens, we see a multitude who are seeking Jesus. So, a very different um, setting here. Uh, verse 1, after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This incident of the feeding of the 5,000 is also found in Mark and Matthew. And we get extra details. I'm not going to add all the details in, but just where they're important, I'll, I'll add them. So in Mark 6.31, we know that the crowds began to gather around him. Jesus didn't even have time for leisure or even to eat. He was so busy. And that's why he said to his disciples, come with me and rest a while. And you know, it's really important for us today that we come away and rest with the Saviour. Because we get so busy and we get so tired. So if we don't come apart with the Saviour, we'll come apart at the seams. (laughs) Verse 2, Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Here's Jesus going across in the boat, and the people are going, Oh, where's this Jesus going? Oh, I think he's going over there. And so they go around the side of the lake, and they they track him down. Now, do they really want to be with him? If you read on, I don't think it's so much that they wanted to be with him, but they were curious about him. So they've seen his miracles, and maybe they looked at Jesus either as a magician to entertain them, or as a physician to assist them. If they were sick, they would have, we've got to see Jesus so we can get better, or it'd be fun to see some stuff, okay? That's, um, that's how I think, um, they were, or what the reason why they were following him. There probably were some people who were following for the right reasons, but there were definitely, I believe, some people there following Jesus for the wrong reasons because later on, they leave him. When he doesn't give them what they want, they go away. So the crowd followed Jesus mainly for the wrong reasons, and it still does today. The crowd mentality is still to manipulate the Lord for a personal, private agenda to get something from Him, rather than simply be with Him and enjoy loving Him. So it's a very, very dangerous thing, and people are really, you know, in church. I'm not saying it's, it's all churches, or not accusing any particular church, but it's, it's more to do with the individual. It's why am I seeking Jesus? Am I seeking him to get something from him? Or am I seeking him because I love him? Verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So there's 5,000 men plus women and children. And Jesus looks at Philip. Imagine being Philip. Put yourself in Philip's shoes. All right. Philip, where are we going to get bread that these guys may eat? Imagine 5,000 plus sitting or oh, spreading out over the grass there. Okay. Remember, it's around Passover time, so there's lots and lots of people. That's why there's probably so many people, such a big crowd. Now, Jesus knows they're going to turn away from him completely very shortly, the next chapter, actually. But Jesus' response is compassion. Now, Mark's gospel tells us he looked upon them as a sheep without a shepherd. That's Mark 6.34. Now, relate this to you as a parent, right? Or a a family. If you're a mum or dad, you know how this works. You know when your kids are coming to you for the wrong reasons. They're coming to you because they want something, okay? When their priorities are amiss or their motives are not right, but still, you know, I know that we still need to love them. It's our God-given duty to tend them, to look after them, to nurture them, protect them, balancing truth and love. So in the same way, in a church setting, every pastor, elder, spiritual leader, and with each other, we need to realize that no matter how wrong some people might be, it's never right to beat them up or discourage them. We are to correct, exhort, encourage, and comfort and whatever is necessary at the time. But it's all for their good. So Luke 9.11 tells us that Jesus also taught the multitude. It's not, it's not mentioned in John's Gospel. Because here the focus is on the test of faith for Philip. So why did Jesus ask Philip this question? Maybe because he's from this area. He's from Bethsaida, John one forty four, And this is near where the miracle took place. So verse 6, But he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So isn't that interesting? God knows. He already knows what, what's going to happen. And he's asking Philip. Why is he asking Philip? Well, it's a test. Have you ever been in a test before? Has God put you in a test? Okay. Jesus puts us in situations where we feel there's no solution in order to show us our progress in the arena of faith. So Jesus lets his followers participate in the work of the kingdom even when he already has things planned out, he's inviting him to join in his work. It's like Jesus said, um, with the father, my father is always working and so am I. What I see the father doing, so do I. And so Jesus is, is drawing Philip in to join him in the work that he's already doing, the work that he's already planned. Now, where, what will Philip do? Look to his own resources or to God's resources? What do you think? Verse seven. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. A denarii is one day's wage. So this is over six months' wages. Which is about right. There's no way you're going to feed 5,000 with even six months' wages. You know, in the church today, especially in the Western world, what do you need to get something done? Money. Yeah. So nothing's changed. And he's saying, you know what, it's useless, we don't have enough money. He's thinking in terms of money. And he's looking at limiting God's work. He's saying, well, if you we have this much, there's still not even enough for them to have a little. And so he's limiting God. And in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. So here's Andrew. He's always a people's person, bringing people to the Lord. But then even he says despondently, but what are they among so many? <laughs> so he's almost there. He's starting to get the, the, the you know, uh, cl- he's starting to get a clue about what's going on, what Jesus might want to do. Now, barley is, um, you know, today we don't have barley bread. We have wheat bread, or even in those days, barley was considered animal food. So these are really, it's a really humble lunch. It's a very poor lunch from a poor family, I'd say. So Andrew almost has it, there's a boy here with some loaves and fishes, but... <laughs> so here's some resources, but... There's not enough. God can't use this. Really? So sometimes we can be aware of the provision that God has given us, but we start raising an objection when we look at the situation practically from a human perspective. So I wonder how many times the Lord has brought us five barley loaves and two small fishes, but we have failed to use them because we thought that they were too small. Now, did God need any help in this miracle? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Did he need anyone's help? Jesus is restraining his work, he's, he's slowing down his work t- so he can get the disciples involved. And that he does the same for us. We're weak, we lack faith, you know, we stumble, we don't see the big picture sometimes. But God is so generous, so gentle that he he slows down and he says, you know what, and he draws us in. And if he can't do everything he wants us to do, he'll just get us to a little bit. So God used a small stone in a small sling to slay a huge giant, First 1 Samuel 17.50. He used a little maiden girl to lead a mighty Syrian general to the prophet Elijah, Second Kings 5. He used a little child to teach his disciples, Matthew 18.2. The Lord seems to delight in using a little to do a lot. So we don't need to be big. We don't need to be really rich. God can use us because it's not by our strength, it's by His Spirit. If you're feeling the need for a miracle, for something to break loose or something to take place, probably the resources are already in your hand. Probably it's already been entrusted to you. Yet like Andrew, you're saying, let's be practical. How is this really going to work? So verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. So, the disciples still didn't really have a clue what was going to happen. They had no, I don't believe they understood that Jesus was going to multiply food for 5,000 people. But he got them involved anyway. He said, All right, you guys, you start making people um, sit down. He didn't say, Oh, you idiots, you don't have faith, get out of the way, let me do it. He could have. He could have just said to the people, I want you all to sit down, and they would have listened. But he didn't. He chose to use the disciples even though they didn't quite get it, they had a lack of faith. So he met them where they were, and he said, even though, paraphrasing, even though you don't have the faith to see what I can do with the little given to me, I'll use you anyway. So and Luke's Gospel tells us that the people sat down in groups of 50, and when the Good Shepherd feeds his sheep, he does so decently and in order. That's First 1 Corinthians 14.40. Now, how long do you think it would have taken to group everyone in groups of 50? 5,000 people. Take quite a while. So they are waiting to be fed. Jesus didn't say, snap his fingers and started raining bread and fish. You know, he said, All right, you want to be fed? Okay, this is what you need to do. And got them all to do that. And then he started breaking the bread and the fish, and then the the 12 disciples had to feed or walk around 5,000 people. So I want to apply this to us. With our devotions. This wasn't a drive through. This was a, a, a picnic, okay? So, a drive through, yep, you go in, get your order, keep driving, pick up your order, and you're out of there, okay? And some of us read our Bibles like a drive through. <laughs> I've got five minutes, quick, open the Bible, let's get something. But we're not really willing to sit down and wait and get that full feeding from the Lord. We'd have, we're not willing to slow down. All right, second part of verse 10. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. So the bread just kept coming and coming, and the disciples kept serving and serving. So that's a pretty amazing sight. I would have loved to have seen that. So when they were filled... Now... You've probably heard this before, but the field means glutted, over full. It's like Friday, they had a special lunch at school and all the staff were invited and they had oh, about 20 dishes out and there was an emu, there was kangaroo, there was, there was all these bush foods and I, I wanted to try a bit of everything. <laughs> I was so full after that. <laughs> I went around to James's place for dinner, I couldn't eat much still. It was, um, yeah, so they were glutted. This was this was heavenly food, this. Even though it was just barley loaves and fish, it was good food. So Jesus did a good job. He said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had not eaten. Even though we might not have the faith that God wants us to have, or we falter, or if, all we need to do is obey what God tells us to do. And even the little bit that we do do, the little bit of faith that we have, will be multiplied and blessed. In obedience to the Lord's command, the disciples simply made the multitude sit down and then distributed the food. Now that would have been interesting. Would you please sit down because Jesus is going to feed you? And they're thinking, with what? So there's there's this faith coming in, okay? Because Jesus already hinted, you know, where are going to eat food for these people? And then he says, all right, get them to sit down. And so they're they're, they're thinking... This is going to end really foolishly or it's going to be a huge miracle. And then they're blessed because of their obedience because there's 12 baskets left over. When we get involved in ministry, when we get involved in serving and sharing, then we're blessed too. Because, And no matter how mundane it might appear, how little it might be, when we serve, we're blessed as well. And we get our full basket as well. And whatever, mate, that might work out. Now, I just want to compare Jesus... And Philip, because this is an application for us, okay? Jesus was cool as a cucumber, and Philip sweating it out, okay? Cool as a cucumber, and Philip sweating. Now Jesus knew what he was going to do all along. And I believe he asked Philip's advice to give Philip the opportunity to stretch and grow, and it's never easy. And God does that for us too. So whatever is frustrating us today, whatever fears you face, whatever tensions you feel, whatever burdens you are bearing, Jesus already knows what he's going to do concerning them. Now we don't know, but he does. And he wants us to walk by faith, to trust him. And now not only did Jesus know what he was going to do, but also how he was going to do it. Before the miracle ever took place, Jesus prayed and gave thanks to his Father. That's verse 11. Thank you, Father, for doing what you're going to do. So Jesus was exercising faith as well. Thank you, Father, that you're going to take care of this situation. I know you will. You are faithful. You have never let me down, but have done exceedingly, abundantly, above all I could ask or think. When I thought I couldn't make it, you pulled me through. When I thought I was going under, you pulled me up. When I thought I was out of it, you pulled me back. You've been so good. Thus, I give you thanks right now in this moment of frustration. Now, thanks. I want to focus on this giving thanks. In the middle of this time when people were hungry and and everyone was looking at Jesus, Jesus was thankful. You know what God's will for you is? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's it. So when we praise the Lord, we're exercising faith. We're saying, God, even though we're suffering now, even though we're going through a hard time now, we know, as we praise you, that this is going to be overcome in your time and in your way. So we can either be filled with his joy despite our circumstances. I'm not saying the circumstances are going to change instantly. But we can be filled with his joy and we can bring pleasure to God by exercising our faith and praising God in the night seasons. As opposed to grieving the Lord by complaining, murmuring, worrying about things and, and taking our eyes off the Lord. So the Lord blesses those who take what they have, as insignificant as it might seem, place it in His hands, and say, Thank you, Lord, I believe in you. So Philip and Jesus were two men standing in the same place. One was frustrated, the other at rest. One was hot and bothered, the other cool and confident. The difference Philip looked at the figures, Jesus looked at the Father. So our choice, both as a church and individuals, is we can follow the example of Philip and and kind of think, why are you picking on me, Lord? My resources are so limited. My situation is impossible. Or we can be like Jesus and lift our eyes to heaven, give thanks to the Father, and then watch him do his miracle multiplying and blessing in, in whatever form that might take. So the Father today wants us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. In everything, give thanks. Give him what you have and then expect him to multiply it. Verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So this refers back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesied that a prophet would come who was like, but greater than, himself. Those who witnessed the miracle that had just taken place thought, surely Jesus must be the prophet of whom Moses spoke. Remember, the the, the manna coming down from heaven and now Jesus is multiplying bread. Verse 15, Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus knew they weren't seeking him for the right reason and historically, if you go back and, and look at what they believed back then, They were looking for someone to free them from the Romans. They were looking for someone literally to feed them. The Jewish tradition says that the Messiah would would give them bread. But Jesus refused to further his kingdom this way. Instead, he went away to a mountain by himself alone. Jesus was more interested in being with his Father in heaven than in hearing the applause of the crowd. That's a really important aspect here. He didn't want the applause, the recognition of the crowd, you know, and that's what people are seeking these days a lot of the time. Look at me, you know, look at the miracle I just did, look at this, and, you know, I'm so good. But Jesus wasn't interested in that. He was more interested in spending time with the Father than hearing the applause of men. Now, they wanted to make Jesus king because they thought that he was the Messiah they wanted. And as I said, the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, he would renew the giving of manna as part of their tradition. It's not in the Bible. So this crowd was willing to support Jesus so long as he gave them what they wanted, which is bread. And making king is also a political thing. The crowd was willing to support Jesus because they wanted to use him to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. So again, they're coming to Jesus for what they can get, not for that love relationship. Now, what did they really need at this point? Did they need a king or did they need a priest? What do you think? Was a king going to save them from their sins? Or did they need the great high priest who would lay down his own life as a sacrifice for the sin of mankind? So Jesus knew that the crowds, their view of him was misconceived as to who he was and for what he was about. And so he got out of there. Now, verse sixteen when now an evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. So Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat that's mark six forty five He knew exactly what he was doing when he put them into this boat on the Sea of Galilee at this time. Now, maybe that he didn't want his disciples to get caught up in this you know human revolution of making Jesus king because remember they had the same beliefs they were still looking for freedom from the Roman oppression. Verse 17 again, And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Remember, it was the third, fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., so Jesus had still not come to them. We also know that Jesus was watching them. In Mark 6.48, we read that Jesus watched the disciples as they rode across the lake, so his eye was on them the whole time. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So Jesus is not only the saviour in the storm, but he's also the sender of the storm. Now this is the main point that we're going to get out of here. Jesus is the saviour in the storm, but he also sends the storms. And just as he did with the disciples, he will send you into a storm knowingly and lovingly. If he sees, or for many reasons. And one of the reasons here was probably because he saw them about to put it into the mentality of the crowd, the mob. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So in the middle of our struggling and toiling in whatever it might be in our lives, guess what? Jesus knows a perfect time to come to us and whisper in our ear, It is I, do not be afraid. And when they had rowed three or four miles, now, the first time that this happened, Jesus was in the boat with them. Remember that? So the first time they were in the storm, Jesus was with them. And so there's a progression, I believe. So the first time Jesus was with them, they woke him up and said, Hey, we are got to perish. And then the second time, they're by themselves, but Jesus is watching them. And so Jesus is stretching them. He's, he's strengthening their faith. Now, here, they've rode about three or four miles. They're about half to three quarters away across, but they can't get any further. So we expect the work that Jesus gives us to be fairly easy to do. You know, God said we'd have success in this, so why are we struggling so much in doing the will of God? They were doing the will of God. They were thinking, I reckon, God, Jesus said to row across the lake to the other side, and we're trying our best, but we're not getting anywhere. Why would Jesus do that? Well, Matthew 14.25 tells us this happened the fourth watch of the night. So they'd been rowing for six to eight hours, and only a little more than halfway across the lake. Then they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and they were afraid. So were they really expecting any help? Were they expecting Jesus to help them? God had told them to do something, but what was their attitude? Yep, God told us to do this. Let's get it done. We don't need God's help. And when God turned up, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we didn't know you were going to turn up. It's like, <laughs> can we do that in our lives too? You know, God tells us to do something. Okay, let's go do it. We know what God wants now, but we're not expecting God to help. We, we think we can do it all on our, on our own. Okay? So they knew what Jesus had commanded them to do, and they set out to do it, but without any help from the Lord. So they're surprised and even afraid to see any supernatural help on the way. So, and as I said, that can, that can be us sometimes. Now, how does God come sometimes? Well, sometimes God's help comes in a way that we do not expect. Has anyone experienced that you think God's going to answer a prayer a certain way, but it doesn't happen that way? There's been lots of things in my life where I've prayed for something and I've had the prayer answered but not the way I expected and I've still been able to survive. And another little point from another gospel, from Matthew tells us that Peter asked Jesus if he could come out and walk on the water. So that happens here, but we're not going to go into that. Uh, Verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the boat. So Jesus didn't jump into the disciples' boat. He didn't force himself on board. The disciples received him willingly. So we can say, oh, it's nice to see you, Lord, but I'm going to bring this thing to shore myself. I'm going to do this my own way. I don't need your help. I'm strong. Or like the disciples, we can willingly and wisely welcome him into the boat. And verse 20, the second part of verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So though halfway across the lake, and then suddenly Jesus gets on the boat, and all the effort they'd been putting into it, and suddenly they're on the other side. So don't think that if you're walking with the Lord, everything's going to be easy. God is purposefully testing our faith. Even though he might seem distant, he's always watching over us. He knows exactly what is going on. He saw them straining at rowing, and yet he let them work at it for a long time. So I just want to finish by looking at four um, reasons that God will allow us to go through storms that apply to us practically. Here's a little story. The teacher walked into the third and fourth grade Sunday school class just in time to hear one of the students pray. Dear God, said the nine-year-old, bless our mothers and our fathers and our sisters and our brothers and bless the teachers and oh, by the way God, take care of yourself because if anything happens to you, we're all sunk. <laughs> Is it possible for God to be sunk? God, Jesus, is unsinkable. So our Lord and our friend is our Savior in the storm who will come in the hour when it's darkest and the danger is greatest. But he's unsinkable. He will always be able to help us. Jesus is not only the Savior in the storm, but he's also the sender of the storm. He knew there was going to be a storm. So here's four reasons. He sends the storm to give us new direction or a new focus. It says in Psalm 107, 23 to 32. It's kind of tailor-made for our story today, our passage in John. It says, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises a stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. So imagine this boat going up and down, up and down in these big waves, right? Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits' end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. The Lord creates storms to cause sailors to come to their wit's end. So we can be proud, uh, we can think, oh, I'm the captain of my ship and the master of my fate, and God will humble us by sending us a storm. And then we find ourselves calling out to the one that we didn't have time for previously, the one that we didn't think we needed previously. Paul says it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And that's that's the ideal, but sometimes we don't respond to God's love and say so God sends a storm to get our attention. What does it profit a man, Jesus asked, if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Mark 8.36 Sometimes the Lord may have to put us in a difficult situation to get our attention because he is more concerned about our eternal state than he is about our present comfort. He sends us into the storms to bring us to a wit's end in order that we might change or call upon him and change direction. Another example, he sends storms to give us necessary correction so that our Example here is Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So what was the, um, the situation here? Well, God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, Uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm going the opposite way. So, Whenever we want to backslide, turn away or sail in the opposite direction, guess who's in port with a ship all ready to go, all ready to sail? It's Satan, okay? Satan never says, You want a backslide? Great. Oh no, where's a ship? Someone get me a ship. Satan is always giving us a way that is easier than God's way. Okay? There's always going to be an easier way to go than God's way. Remember the road to hell is wide and easy and the, the road to heaven is, is narrow and difficult. So Satan's always got the ship ready to go in the opposite direction and it's going to be an easy ride. But you know that if you jump on you're going to pay for it like Jonah did. The next one, he sends storms to give us needed protection. And this is Matthew fourteen twenty one and 22. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So going back to what we said before about them making him king, um, he's saying, you've got to get out of here. This is a dangerous situation. You, I don't want you involved in this. So Jesus got out of there too. Now, there's a, um, a little story here. A fire department received a shipment of high-tech helmets. They are brightly colored, scuff-resistant, adjustable-strapped, comfortable- Really, really look really great and cost $500 each. There was only one problem. They melted when they got near heat. So these, um, these, these fire helmets, they were useless. Okay. Now we can have all our stuff, our gadgets, our plans, our lives, you know, and they're all shiny. But the problem is they might not take the heat. So when we're tested, when our lives are tested with fire at the judgment seat of Christ, that which is wood, hay and stubble will burn. It will melt away. Only that which is gold, silver and precious stones will remain. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. So what does the Lord do? He says, to get your mind off the material world, I'm sending you into a storm where you will wrestle with issues and struggles and with difficulties. I'm watching over you, praying for you and living right inside of you. But it's a struggle you'll have to go through in order that your focus can be shifted from the temporal to the eternal. And the last one is He sends storms to develop our character to make us mature and complete. So Acts four one to four Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day. For it is already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Imagine if the disciples had not gone through any tests of faith and they come to this. How do you think they would have reacted? Do you think they would have coped? You know, being arrested, thrown in prison? Probably not. Okay. So we see Jesus is preparing them through many different difficult circumstances. This is a brutal persecution. You know, later on, they're going to be sat, um, you know, James is killed and that. It's a preparatory thing for us. Our captain, captain of our salvation, Jesus, sees what tomorrow holds. And he says to us, as difficult as this might seem, it's absolutely necessary to prepare you and perfect you, to mature you for what is coming. And have you looked back at your, can you look back at your life and see, well, I can understand now why God let me go through those hard times. Because now well, one, I'm able to help people go through those hard times, and two, I'm able to go through things that I wouldn't have been able to go through because of them. Father, thank you for, Lord, that you are the the sender of the storm and and help us to be thankful for the storms. But we also know that you're the saviour in the storm. And so you send us these storms for different reasons as we've just been through. And we just pray that you'll help us to recognise that everything is under your control that we don't need to panic, that we need to put our faith in you, not looking to our own resources, but Lord, it's a test of our faith and we need to have our eyes on you and give thanks in all situations and, and just wait for you to do your will and to come through because you're always working and help us to join in with your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.